Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Before we get into the show, I just want to let you know about our sponsor. It's a film called Sir John A. and uh, Curse of the Antiquenched. It's a fun comedy. It stars John Dunsworth from Trailer Park Boys, Spenny from Kenny vs. Spenny, and The Diener from Fubar. It's got a lot of other funny Canadians in it. It's about two brothers that save the city of Kingston from demons by staying drunk. Uh, you can get it on Vimeo On Demand right now. Watch it with special features and everything, uh, or you can check it out on Amazon Prime in the States. Check out Curse of the Antiquenched. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Welcome to the Raiders of the Lost Commentary Podcast. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The unofficial commentary for your favorite... Get to the chopper! ...and not-so-favorite films. The famous comedian, Arnold Braunschweiger. Starring your hosts, Adam and Matt. Can you dig it? Start your movie in three, two, one. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Got a very special show today. Uh, with me, I have director Cameron Van Hoy, and we're talking about his movie Flinch. Cameron, how are you? I'm good, Adam. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so, yeah, every now and then we get, uh, you know, some indie filmmaker guests. Um, I checked out your movie the other day. I really liked it, and uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and luckily we were able to get connected uh, I wonder if you could just give me, uh, before we get into too much about Flinch, I wanted to maybe just get a little, learn a little about you and learn a bit about how you got into the business. Yeah. Um, I, I've been, I started, I started acting at a very young age is how I got into it really. Um, I worked professionally on some films and, uh, went to New York, studied acting really got into filming. I was always into filming. I had a video camera at a very young age and I moved out to LA to pursue a film career. Uh, and out here I went to a place called the art Institute for a little bit and then just jumped into the LA indie scene. Um, and started, I got an opportunity to like write something and or to produce something first. And then I, and then I, produced another film. Then I started writing and producing films and putting movies together. Uh, and that's how I've done it. I've just grinded my teeth, um, pretty much, uh, as a producer, um, and then just directed my first film. That's great, man. Yeah. So Flinch is your first feature film. It's my my first feature film as a writer director. Yeah, man, that's great. And congrats. Like it's a, it's a great film. Um, bring me through like, just like, uh, where you got the idea for this, like the writing process of, uh, of making flinch. Like, was this one of many things that you were hoping to get made? And this is just the first thing that, you know, caught fire or was this like the one, the dream, the thing you needed to get made? This movie, uh, I was writing a version of this years ago and, and then I, I, I put it on the shelf to go produce a movie called tragedy girls. And then after producing tragedy girls, I was like, okay, I'm going to go direct my first feature. And I I knew I wasn't going to have like a huge budget to do my first film. So I, 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 you know, I was going through my material and a lot of stuff that I write is really expensive. Uh, so this one, I was like, I could do this one on a budget. And that, that was a big part of it, you know, because you have to think about budget when you're making a film. Um, to achieve all the things you want to achieve. And I really cared about the characters, especially Joey and his mom. That was always like the heart of it for me. 
it def- it's definitely evident in watching the film. It felt feels like you spent like a lot of time there, just thinking yeah. about the that dynamic. Yeah, I love I love those people. Um, so yeah, that's that's how and you know that, that's how this one came about. Um, that's great, man. So like, you write this script. Obviously, there's uh, you're you're a producer on this, but there's a few other producers as well. Like, do you bring it to somebody? Do you start pitching this around, or you just decide like I'm just gonna do this on my own? Or what's like your process after that? Yeah, I mean, because I have produced. I know a thing or two about it, and I had some relationships with some investors, um, and then, so so I, I was able to put together a bit of the financing myself, and then I brought on other producers who I worked with or been talking with and knew to help me round out the budget and make the movie. You know, so I brought yeah. on people who I trusted to help me with this film. You know. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like, skin in the game is always something, like, at least I hear all the time, right? Like, if you have skin in the game, people are usually more willing to put up money because you believe in it so much, you're putting up your own money. Um, I uh, I do get that. Did you attach any talent before you went to investors, or did you just, like, uh, you know, go to them with the idea and, like, hey, we're maybe going to look at this, but, you know, nothing's written in stone yet, or...? Yeah, th- I mean, I didn't have any um, actors in place. I didn't have any actors in place when I put it together. It was more just the concept and, you know, this is what I'm doing. I knew a couple actors that I wanted who I ended up getting. Um, but it wasn't the type of thing where I went and said, like, hey, I've got this person attached. Do you want to do it? It, was, it, it? it more happened once the film was happening. Yeah, and I suppose it's easier to convince those people like, Hey, we got money in hand. Like we're, we're shooting, you know, are you interested or. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go, you know what I mean? Like sometimes when you have momentum and you're moving, things happen. It's, it's interesting. Uh, and that was certainly the process with this. Um, so what was like, uh, like I, I hear this a lot, but like when people get a decent or a big cast, like, like who'd you cast first that sort of like set the ball in motion that you're able to attach people like Tom Segura and, and things like that? Uh, I, the real linchpin for that was uh, Daniel Zavato, who plays the lead character Doyle in the film. Uh, he was he was pretty much the first attachment. I, I, I think I had Buddy Duress first because I knew I wanted him in the movie. Right. Uh, I just I, I wanted him to play a villain in a crime film and – so, so I went to him first and had him, and th- but then I went to Zavato. And once I got Zavato on board, that's when I was able to get everybody else. He really helped. I mean, like for instance, Kathy Moriarty's people, her her representation, because you always got to go through the reps. I mean, you don't always have to, but oftentimes you do. Um, and having an actor like Zavato on board really helped with that because you know these actors they want to work with them, and and the, the reps know good actors, and they all knew Zavato and really respected his work. So he really helped me to get Kathy. And then once we had Kathy on board, we were able to get, you know, uh, David and then Bauer and Segura and all these people. That's great, man. Cause like, yeah, your cast is, is pretty great. And then also knowing it is a lower budget, you know, you are putting all your money on the screen. I wonder if you could maybe just talk about that, like just budgeting this thing out. I know we don't want to get into specifics too much, but like, 
you know, deciding where you want to spend money and what you spend money on. I want, just wonder if you could bring us through a bit of that process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's really one of the interesting pieces to making any film, I imagine, especially independent films is budget, you know, yet these things cost money, <laughs> you know, uh, movies cost money. And so when you don't have tons of it, you have to be really smart about how you use it. Um, and there's so many like examples of this and stories around it. Uh, I could probably talk for hours on it, but I mean, some of the big things were, I guess two of the biggest things were one, the decision to shoot at night for most of the film. It one, it just lends itself well to the type of movie that it is, which is, it's really like a noir film, you know, neo-noir. Um, so, you know, shooting at night lends itself well to that atmosphere and that genre, but it also shooting at night, I think it allows you to expand your production value. Um, you have a lot of control over light, which really gives you, it just gives you a lot of detail and a lot of, just gives you a lot of power to create moods and it just feels better. You know, there's just something bigger about shooting at night and it doesn't really cost you much more to do it, but it amplifies the production value. So shooting at night was a big piece to it. And then the other thing for me was just really being relentless about the movie that I wanted to get. I mean, when we started out, I think I was only supposed to have 18 days of principal photography that ended up being ultimately like 25 days of principal. And then in post-production, I kept going back into production. So I was, after we finished principal, you know, editing the film, I wanted more. I kept wanting more. I kept wanting more for the action sequences and for this piece and that. You know, there's, you know, you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, well, I really need this and oh, I really want that and I need whether it's like a scene or a shot sometimes. And I was very relentless about going back and getting more. So and, did you budget that in originally, or did you just decide like we need these shots? We're going out this this weekend to get like on with a skeleton crew. I'm assuming just to get these shots or. You know, sometimes it was a skeleton crew and sometimes it was not a skeleton crew. Uh, and no, we didn't budget in originally. It was just being relentless and fighting for every inch of it. Um, you know, there were there were shoots where I was like, I really wanted a lot of driving and, and moving around. When you watch the film, there's a lot of shots of, you know, Zavato walking from here to there or a car driving on the freeway. And, and you know, there's it, all of that um, stuff. Um, some of that was done, you know, really skeleton. We'd go out and, you know, get the car and get a camera and rigs, rig things up and just shoot through the night and just collecting a bunch of shots to help create a sequence. Uh, and then other times it was, you know, like, especially with the, the final shootout in the movie, I went back and picked up that I think three other times. So that was going back to the house that we originally shot in, bringing in an entire crew, bringing in stunt people and just kept building out these sequences so that they could be where I wanted them to be. And you're kind of hoping maybe that they didn't change the house in the last few months that you were there, like that it doesn't oh, yeah. match continuity wise or. I mean, like, you know, begging the actors not to cut their hair. <laughs> yeah, that too, right? You want a, sorts of things. a random mustache showing up. Yeah. Uh, 
so yeah, I, I, that brings me to the next like question, but just like a day to day on a, on the production, like bring me through like the worst day and bring me through the best day. Huh? The worst day and the best day. Um, I mean, there's always good and bad days. Uh, you, you know, like starting the movie was rough. The first couple days were rough just because, you know, one, we decided to start with one of the, like, like three of the biggest scenes between the two leads in the film, um, which in retrospect, I don't know if I would start that way again. Um, but we did. And, you know, it's, it's tough when you start a film cause everyone's getting to know each other and everyone cares, but everyone's nervous and, um, you know, actors are sensitive and they, they, they want to do their best. And we really just jumped into it. So we had to kind of find our groove at the beginning of the production. Um, and that was, that was like, a, that was really a time of building trust. And, and also it's like a smaller film. So there it's, you know, you're working out kinks and creating a culture on set and all of that. And that takes a little bit of time and, um, you know, that stuff was a little rough. And then all, actually, also another rough day was we were supposed to shoot the final shootout in this one, you know, we needed a big house. And originally we had this like mega mansion in Beverly Hills. Uh, and my producing team, they, they made the call without me because I was shooting. I'm on set. They like scrapped this house because, you know, the rules in Beverly Hills, like we would have had to have had taillights, which means like, you know, wrapped production trucks and everything gone by a certain hour. And they knew we weren't going to make that happen. I mean, we were running over every day of our shoot. Um, so, you know, you have moments like that when, you know, you're like really changing up the schedule and losing a location. Um, one day the, the Zavada, the lead actor, he had to go to the hospital. He hit his head really Jeez. hard. Um, that was a bad day, you know, and then good days, good days are the days that you go home and you're like, yo, I got it. You know, like those are the good days is when you, when you nail a scene and you're like, Oh my gosh, like we totally killed that. We got the scene. Um, and then and there were plenty of those days as well. Well, that's good. It's always to have like a, a good balance of the two, I'm sure. Um, so I was wanted to know maybe uh, jump back into casting for a second, but like, so you attached uh, Daniel Zavato, and then like, are you approaching all these actors, you know, on your own? Or are you going through like a casting agent? Like, do we have somebody like a casting director rather, like approaching them for you and like writing up proposals? Like, are you coming to them all just at once, and then or like a variety of people hoping for the best, or did you have certain people in mind that you knew you wanted for certain roles? Yeah. Casting is always, you know, casting is an art form. It is. It's, it's this, it's a, it's like a dance. It's like courting. It's, it's like dating. You know, you, <laughs> it's, um, you, you want to get, you want to get the date you want and you want to impress them and, but you don't want to seem too eager and all this stuff. So we, we had a casting director who is just awesome. Michelle Lewitt. She was on from the beginning. Uh, and I've been, you know, I've, again, as a producer, like every movie I've done, I've cast. I've always been in charge, dealing with the agents, making the offers. Um, and it, it requires, it, it is, it is a, it's, it's courting, you know? So no, you can't cast too wide of a net. You can't go out to, you know, multiple people at the same time. It's like a no, no. 
So you've got to like pick your battles and figure out who you're going to go after and find an angle to get to them, whether it's an agent or a manager or sometimes a personal relationship or sometimes your manager has a relationship with somebody else <clears throat> or how, you know, however that is. And you find the best way in and then send an offer and send materials and it's, it's, it's every, it, there's a lot of nuance involved in it, but it really is a dance, uh, casting and, you know, having a good casting director on board really helps. Yeah. Eh? Um, any secrets of the trade you could tell us? Like, is there anything like without giving away too much of your magic, but like, is there ever something like where you're like, Oh, this, this usually works. or this is like something I go into thinking about how I uh, approach a situation like that. Um, Hmm. I mean, money always works. Just throw, <laughs> throwing money at the situation is usually really good. Uh, but when you don't have tons of that, you got to get creative. Um, I mean, you know, actors want to work and they want to do cool things, you know, so you got to mm. use that to your advantage. Um, and you got to you got to deal with the agents and you got to be kind of aggressive with the agents and relentless with them, which can be tough. Sometimes the line of communication is very, um, rough, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it, it really is a nuanced dance. It's the best way I can put it. No, I, um, I mean, I think I know what you mean, but yeah, I, I, I know it's, it's hard to put your finger on it on certain things sometimes. Um, so yeah, like going by, like, just like uh, watching the film, watching the credits, like, you know, pretty short credit list uh, of people that were involved in the film which speaks to like how low budget it is and day-to-day uh workings and whatnot but you managed to like eke out a ton of production value and i know you talked about that being you know something of shooting at night um i wondered if you'd talk to me a bit about just like decisions you made about the look of the film because it does has a, have a very strong look and like the the neo-noir thing is very very evident like you know discussions with your cinematographer like was this like something going into it you had these types of thoughts and ideas of of the look of the film early on yeah so i mean okay so i had an incredible dp on this movie kai Saul, who is just a godsend and, and an artist <laughs> he's in so good um and he yeah he's just such a talent um so i was very lucky to have him on board and we spent a lot of time going over the look of the movie, talking about shots, referencing other films, referencing shots, and also location scouting, which is another, another big piece to the production value outside of shooting at night is our locations. We have great locations in the movie and a lot of them, you know. Is uh, that just because it's L.A.? It's e is it easier to find stuff in L.A. just because, like, movies are made there? Like, like uh, around Toronto, it's like, there's just companies you call up and they send you like, you know, a 2000 page PDF of just all the cool shit in town, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if LA's any easier than any other place. It might be harder in the sense that people are so savvy to production out here. They, they charge an arm and a leg. Mm. And then, uh, also like permit wise, stealing shots is tough out here because, you know, like film LA and the permit office is so savvy to production, um, as are the, as are the police officers. Like, you know, we did a lot of guerrilla shooting for a lot of stuff where we, we just didn't have permits and we went out and just grabbed what we needed. Um, I'm sure in other places and cities you can just go out with a camera and shoot in LA. It's a little tougher. 
But I know the city really well because I've lived here for a long time. Um, so, you, you know, it's like you fight for the things that you want. Like, you know, like, for instance, we opened the movie on this church, it's this gorgeous big church in LA that we spent a lot of money on. I just really wanted this church. I wanted to start the film in, in this place. Um, so we spent a lot of money on that. The house that Doyle, uh, lives in where I knew we were going to spend a good amount of time. Um, you know, we didn't spend an arm and a leg on it, uh, but we found a good location and, and we're able to lock down there. And, um, yeah, you know, you just, you, you know, I, I didn't deal with like, one of the producers handled the location scouting, Armin uh, Guyan, um, who is a friend of mine and a collaborator. We worked on Tragedy Girls together. He produced that with me. Um, you know, he really helped on the location front. And it was just driving around with Kai and Armin and myself and finding our locations and locking them down um, when we had to or when we could. And, and if we couldn't, stealing them, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's great. Like, it, it does look like I know some. You know, sometimes you watch indie films, you're like, oh, like it's it's obvious that they weren't allowed to be there. But then, uh, you know, like with your th- movie, it, it does look like you had permission to be there. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but like, or if that's just yeah. something like as filmmakers, maybe we see and like well, the average audience just says, sees like, uh, oh, you know, everyone senses it, and and I I think the film does feel like we it, it's seamless. It feels seamless in in the way we move through the city. Um, and that is, you know, a lot of the times that comes down to the way you're covering scenes. <clears throat> a lot of times if you're stealing shots, you, you know, you, you might not have the time to get what you need. So you're, you're, you're making decisions and setting up like, oh, we'll shoot it from across the street and get one shot and move on. And you're lacking coverage. Like we never did that. Whenever I was setting up, for lack of a better term, across the street, like I was doing it intentionally there's a lot of shots with a zoom lens where like, you know, the character's walking or cars driving and we're we're kind of zooming in on them. And that's, that's like an ode to a certain type of cinema, um, and an approach. It's kind of really more seventies. Yeah. Anything. Um, but I wanted that, I wanted that vibe. I wanted that zooming. So when we did that, we wanted, and then like, there's this one scene in the movie where there's a cop car and uh, the lead character pulls up next to it, or the cop car pulls up next to him, and there's like some tension built around it because he's, you know, just done something bad. And there's something in the car, you know. So we shot, so we rented a cop car, but we didn't have a permit or a location to shoot that anywhere. And we, I forget the the circumstance. I think we were supposed to shoot it another day. We didn't get to it. We had to get the shot, so we just went out and did it. And we just set up on a street in downtown LA brought the whole crew there and just shot for hours on a street with a cop car. And even at one point cops came by us and, and we were like, okay, well we're going to get shut down. Uh, but we didn't, the cops just moved on and never asked to see our permits or anything. But I, I just wouldn't, I didn't relent. I, I didn't, um, I didn't like sacrifice the way I wanted to shoot anything, even if I didn't have, the permits for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I just stayed there and, and the crew, God bless them, went along with it. And we just covered the thing, you know, like multiple angles and a lot of coverage and just, just, and I think that's why it always feels, um, you know, well put together. Mm. I, uh, I've definitely shot gorilla stuff before and, uh, I've like, I may not get away with it now cause I'm, I look a little older, but, uh, I've used the, if someone comes along or bylaw, something comes along, I'd say a school project. Yeah. And then they just keep walking. 
yeah. Or yeah, there's a few other excuses that I've used in the past, but yeah, don't want people to catch on to them too much. Um, yeah, they've, I've heard these rules like, oh, if you don't have sticks on the ground, it's okay. But I mean, <clears throat> like we had carts, you know, we had so much, yeah. stuff, you know, like there were times where we were like, we, like we, when we were doing a lot of the night stuff, um, cause there's, you know, there's a lot of shots that, and that also makes the film feel bigger. You know, there's like just a shot on a back alley as, a, as he walks to a car and, and, and hot wires a car, you know, um, we had a base camp and a, and a couple trucks and we would just stay at the base camp. I'd find where we were going to shoot a shot. We'd go out, bring the crew, set up the truck. I mean, and like this is in skid row, you know, and there's like an element of people down there and it's rough and there's, you know, defecating people defecated on the street. Like it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, some, some, it gets a little gnarly down there sometimes. And we're Scary. just pulling up the truck, unloading everything, uh, dropping equipment on the ground, shooting and loading it back up in the truck, going back to base camp and getting ready to go to the next spot to do the next thing. Um, yeah, right? Schwarzenegger tells the story of, uh, you know, that scene in uh, the first Terminator where he just punches the window of that station wagon that they just set that up on a street with this fake glass and they parked it in front of that house and then him and Cameron drove over to that location and they filmed that just the two of them. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. You got to get it done yeah. like that sometimes, right? Yeah, you do. Absolutely. Um, so you get through production, you luckily don't get arrested or shot, um, in Skid Row and, uh, bring me through like post-production. Obviously I you spoke about going back to, to shoot a few times, but like, you know, you start editing, you start doing the grade, you, you get an amazing soundtrack, which like, and the, the music is amazing, by the way. Um, so like, bring me through a bit of that. Was any of that locked in from the beginning or did you sort of like piece it together as, as you, you know, got it in, in the edit or? Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as music, I, I knew I wanted Miami Nights 1984 to score the film from, I was writing it, uh, you know, that, that I always wanted that score. I love that artist. And, uh, just knew I wanted him. So I was kind of cutting it to music like that. Um, and then I approached him somewhere along the line and, and he, he agreed to do it. And I, I really worked with, um, Justin Williams on the, on the editing. He, he was the guy and he, he crushed it. And we just spent a lot of time, you know, we spent a lot of time editing and that's kind of just how I am. Um, I, I like to overthink things and, and, overwork things and try a lot of things. And so, you know, we did that. We just spent a lot of time editing and it's just amazing how much you can find. And, and also another thing that I did is I did a lot of test screenings, you know, like I would get, finally when I felt like I had a cut of the movie to show, I would gather as many people as I could try to get people who didn't know me you know, and I'd done this on previous films that had bigger budgets that I produced where you have a test screening. Um, but I didn't have, you know, those test screenings can cost like $25,000 uh, to do them like the, the right way through these big services that do it. I didn't have that. So, you know, you're gathering as many people as you can, uh, which is harder than it sounds to just get random people to come in and watch a film. But I did that a lot and I would, I would have and created a questionnaire um, have them you know, answer questions that are anonymous and I was able to get data and really just like look at that and, 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 and use that to try to get objective because it's hard to be objective when you've written something and then you've shot it and then you're editing it and you're looking at it again and again. It, you don't 
you lose perspective can. almost, right? Like yeah. you can't, yeah, it's, you really can, you really can lose perspective and you need to, you need other eyes to help you to see the things that are there or aren't there that you're not seeing. So that just was watching it in the room sometimes with someone new and you start noticing things you don't, you maybe don't notice or maybe don't want to notice when you're watching it alone. I find that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Getting eyes on it is, is key. Um, so we did a lot of that. I found the, Another trick I've done in the past, it takes a while to do. You got to like let something render overnight. You just flip the whole movie. So like, you know, the flip tool in in the edit program that, so it's like inverted. It's so you're not used to looking. It's like, it feels like a new thing. It like tricks your brain somehow. And it feels like you're Hmm. watching a whole new movie. What do you mean when you flip it? Like you play the back to the beginning? No. So it's like if you, in the edit program, like if like somebody's on the left side, then they'll be on the right side. Like, you know, that, that oh, quick, like flip the image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but oh, and you watch yeah, it still it in real time, like, like front to back, right. but it's just inverted. So I don't know. It, it does a weird trick for your brain. I've heard a few editors do this and that's it, interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I don't know whether or not it's like real. It works for everyone, but, or it's just no, how no. my brain works. Um, well, you definitely got to do things to get objective. You have to, because at a certain point you're, it feels like you're in the middle of the ocean and there's no land anywhere around you. And it's like, okay, well we could paddle that way or we could paddle that way, you know, and I don't know where land is, <laughs> but let's try going this way a little bit. And maybe we'll see some land and you might go that way and make edits and try things and do things. And you, you know what? I'm not seeing any land. <laughs> you know, I was like, right. let's go that way, you know, like, and you can do that at every spot along the film. So you got to do things. And that sounds like an interesting one. I mean, there's, yeah, you got to do things to see it fresh. Yeah, exactly. Um, just even stepping away for a week and not thinking about it and coming back yeah. is, it does a lot. Um, yeah. Was there very much VFX in the film, like, uh, or did you guys just get a lot of it just in camera? We got most of it in camera. Um, we yeah, we got most of it in camera. I was really uh, convicted about not doing um, CGI muzzle flash mm. for the guns. It's done a lot uh, now. What? It's done a lot now. Like it's it's almost it's kind of been ruined in a way. Well, it's yeah, it just looks terrible in my opinion. Um, I can always tell, you know, Yeah. Uh, just, it, I never believe it. Um, it's, it, you know, it's just, there's something when a dude, a gun's a powerful prop because mm-hmm. for an actor, it's a prop. Even that gun, when you're shooting a blank, it's a prop, but it's a powerful one. It's got kick. It's got sound. Like it does things to your body when you shoot it that are you know, near impossible for an actor to fake or replicate or act. Um, so there's something about shooting real rounds that is, is great. And then also like squibbing, like we did all real squibbing, not only for the bodies, but for like, um, gun hits on the walls, um, furniture, like everything that's getting shot really got shot. So that adds, I think something to it all. Um, no, we didn't really have much CGI, a couple little cleanup things, there's one shot that I messed around with the city on, uh, which I don't think anyone would ever know. 
But um, other than that, the, probably that one shot with the city was my biggest shot for CGI. Um, what'd you do to to the shot? Just like paint I out see. or removal or? Yeah, yeah. Well, we had to shoot this one scene, uh, an exterior scene in this location that just wasn't ideal. It was one of those spots where I just wasn't able to really get where I wanted to go. So I I built the city in the background for the wise. Oh, I see. I see. Oh, yeah. Just to keep L.A. as this character, just to keep the city feel the way I wanted it yeah. all the time, you know? Add some some uh, production value, too. Um, it's interesting, like, you talking about just using, you know, the real prop guns and, like, blank firing guns and squibbing walls and stuff. What if you could maybe bring me through, like, breaking down how you direct a scene like that and, like, you know, how you approach a shot list, how you approach a day and, you know, going about tackling a scene like that. Yeah. Um, shooting, shooting action is really tough. Uh, people, people don't give it enough credit. It's, it's really an art. Uh, especially, uh, you know, especially when you're not CGIing it, you know, it's like one thing you watch these action scenes in like a Marvel movie and everything's done in CGI. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, not everything, but it's, you know, it's like another thing to just be doing it all practice. It's, it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to do it because resets take a lot of time and, you know, prep takes a lot of time. It's just time consuming. Uh, and you need a lot of coverage to do it right. So, I mean, the way I approached it is like, at first I was supposed to do these, these action sequences in like, you know, I think the opening shootout scene, I was supposed to do it in a day and the final shootout scene I was, I had to do it in like a day and a half. And those were, those were two sequences that I just kept going back in the edit to get what I wanted because I, you know, I was cutting them. I'm like, okay, this is not, this is not the way you open this film or end the film. Um, and I got the meat of the movie, you know, the performances and the scenes and all of that in principle, but a lot of the action stuff, I kept going back to get it where I wanted it for this movie. Um, and when I would go back, like, yeah, like when I went back to do the final shootout, I shot a whole previs on my phone in the location. I went in with some stunt coordinators and just built out a big sequence and edited it together, uh, you know, and, and, and did all that. And yeah, yeah. You're storyboarding it and, um, and really just trying to conceptualize how it's going to work and, and just watching great action sequences and trying to use things and, um, and do, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. you've seen the, uh, behind the scenes of Mandalorian Rodriguez pre in his backyard with his kids and action figures, the, uh, the scenes for uh, his episode of the Mandalorian. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's great. And they, they show it shot for shot and it's, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the Mandalorian, but, uh, I've seen some of it. It was a big episode and, uh, Which season, season one or season two, season two. And, uh, yeah, it's a big action sequence, but yeah, then they, in the behind the scenes, they show him and his kids in the backyard. And then when people get shot, he just has action figures. He holds up in front of the camera that just fall down. But I don't know. It was, it's like really clever. But then when you see it side by side, you're like, oh yeah, if you were on set and you were trying to tell a stunt guy, like you're over here, this guy's over here, it works, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, you gotta know what you're doing when you go in to shoot that stuff on the day uh you really do so pre-visiting is very valuable how much of it's like in your controller how much of it is like some of the stunt coordinators 
almost have to tell you where stuff has to be just for safety or? Um, I think on this one, it was mostly just in my control. I think as you get bigger budgets and more time, uh, you probably do lose a little bit of control to the stunt coordinators. Uh, and they, they kind of know what they're doing. Um, in that regard, you know, but for me on this one, it was pretty much what I, what I was setting out to do. Yeah. Eh? Um, so you get this movie, um, finished, like you package it all up, you get this amazing score, you get an amazing grade on the film. Um, did you have distribution before you went to, to shoot or was this something you're taking out independently? Like, do you have traditional distribution or, or are you guys doing it all independent? We're doing it all independently. So uh, bring me through the, the decision to do that. Yeah. So I have, again, produced a number of films and I've been through the selling process. And in my humble opinion, there's a big problem in the film business as it relates to independent movies. Mm, and it is. Preach. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it's, it's distribution. It's, it's changed a lot over the last few years and where it kind of sits now is the streaming companies have all the power, right? Mm. So the streaming company wants to buy your movie and put it on their platform and, and pay you, you know, what it costs to make the film and, and more, right. For your time and efforts, um, everyone's time and efforts, then great, right. Those deals are kind of few and far between nowadays, especially as the streamers are just making their own stuff. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and what they're looking to acquire. So it's like, so there's like that, which can happen for you and it does, but it doesn't happen a lot. No. And then if that, Some of the if that, money Netflix like puts up, I don't, there was like an article that was out like, uh, I don't know, six months ago or so. Like, and like offering up like five grand to like, like bigger movies too. It's like take yes. it or leave it, you know? Yeah, they, they do that a lot. Um, and it's like, you know, no way, you know what I mean? Like, let's not, you, you know, like a lot of times they put you in this losing pro, you know, situations, like you're going to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can either get a streaming deal or not. And then if you don't go that way, then you've got to turn to, you know, there's like a lot of distributors out there that say, okay, fine, we'll take your movie. Um, you know, we're going to market it. We're going to charge you for marketing. We're going to distribute it. We're going to charge you for distribution. All the money that we put into these things, we're going to recoup it plus some profit on top of that. And then we're going to take a fee for doing all the work that we've done. Yeah. And then what they do is a lot of the times all of the fees are a lot higher than they should be because they're charging all of their hours that they're spending probably on a lot of different things to your film. And it just becomes – really expensive and jumbled when it comes to accounting and numbers. And then they take your movie and if it, you know, certain films, they'll, they'll put a real good theatrical behind them, but more and more, they don't even do that. You know, they might do, if you're lucky, a small theatrical, and then they go straight to these VOD platforms, iTunes, Amazon, and put the film there for people to rent it and watch it at home. But you don't need anyone to get onto iTunes and Amazon. Anyone can do that themselves nowadays, right? Uh, so really, the, there's not a big barrier to entry, and there's not much different between what they're doing as to what anyone else can do, only that they might have a little bit more capital to spend on marketing uh, and, and then maybe more experience with distribution, which is, it is a lot of work, and I've had to 
learn, my team and I have all had to learn a lot about it uh, in order to service the film out. And then, you know, the marketing end of things, which, you know, look, there's some people that are amazing at marketing and there's others that aren't. And um, sometimes these distributors that come on, they don't even do a great job marketing the film. No, eh? So I'm very pleased with the way this process has been going. I think it's the future for filmmakers. I think that the way that the digital camera revolutionized filmmaking and it made it accessible to so many people um like that's kind of old news you know like Mm. we've all got a camera i think that the new big cool thing for independent film is self-releasing is making your film and putting it out there the same way that so many musicians now put their music onto spotify yeah and people are able to find it and, and you know and some of these songs just blow up um i think that's where independent film is headed and needs to be headed. And, and that's how we're doing it. And it's, it's been great, man. I couldn't agree more. And I'm, and I'm actually relieved and happy to hear that you had success doing that. A lot of the interviews we do, it's like, it gets to this portion of the, the podcast and it's like, people don't want to talk about the, how they got screwed over by the deal or like, you know, after the fact they're like, yeah, that was, that wasn't good. Or, um, it is nice to hear. So did you go through an aggregator or did you just go th- right to something like film hub or, uh, yeah, we went, we went through an aggregator and then just from through there, like, um, do you get like, like, do they still take a cut or is it like an aggregator no. that just helps you get it on there? Yeah, they just, they just, you just pay them and they get it on there for you, which there's also pitfalls in that, which we've learned, but it's, there's no cut involved. They don't take anything. They don't own your movie. Um, and it's ultimately a lot better. And then it just becomes about reaching an audience, which is also complicated. Um, but, uh, look, it requires money to do it right. In all honesty, like you have to market and you have to be clever about it. Um, but if you, if you're able to, you know, if you're really going to make a film, put a a portion of your budget into your marketing release. If you want to do it this way, like look at that as part of your filmmaking. And like, even with this, like our movies, social media is awesome, right? It's so cool. And we have almost 20,000 followers so far. It's growing. It's growing rapidly. Um, and it's a part of the movie, you know, all of the content that we're releasing, all the posters. That's the other cool thing. You get to design your poster. You get to design your trailer. You get to design all of these materials which represent your film. It's really part of telling your story. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's fun and, and it's nice to have that that control. Yeah, for sure. Um, going into it was a, like part of the marketing sort of plan a decision like to get someone with a huge reach like Segura and like promote it on YMH and stuff like that? Or, you know, that was not part of the plan. Um, when we were casting the movie, that role was not yet cast while we were shooting. And we were like, well, we got to cast this role. And I remember sitting down with my casting director and, you know, we were looking at actors and just nothing felt right. And I, and I said, I said, Hey, look, um, let's go to a comedian. You know, I had the idea to go to a comedian and, um, and she was the one who brought up Tom Segura and I was like, oh yeah, he'd be great, you know, perfect. And he, he agreed to do it and that, that was it, you know, and only after that, he's such a great guy and such an artist. And not only is he a great comedian, he's a really great actor. And in fact, 
like, I, I think he started just acting first when he came out to LA and or, or started on his journey as an entertainer. Um, and obviously he's crushed it in the world of comedy, but he's, he's making moves into this space. And so he's been very accommodative and supportive of the film, which, which is worth a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's, that had to have like moved the needle quite a bit to like get that push on their show. Like, I mean, like I've listened to that show often enough and like their audience and fan base, I'm sure you got some strange comments after that appearance on, on the show. The strangest. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't stop blowing up all. It's amazing. Like I'm, I got to start giving out like free merch to the best comments. Cause some of these people just everything, every trailer, every review space, like these people are on there just right. It's, it's, it's incredible. His yeah. Fame, it, it's, yeah it's 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 wild and it's hilarious too um yeah that's great and then like you know it is something like going into into this like having people like that attached sometimes it can work sometimes it can backfire but i think in your case like obviously he's a great actor i think like you know a lot of these comedians and people that are in comedy like i think sometimes they're dismissed because they people view it as like you know this sub humor but like to pull off a joke and to pull off that stuff night in, night out, it is a performance, right? And, you know. It's one of, it's one of the hardest types of performance. Yeah, like failing in front of a live audience is so hard. You so nothing. You have no props. You have no partner. It's you and a microphone and an audience. You know what I mean? Like it is it's – it's an incredible art form. Um, so, you know, obviously you take it out uh, independently and you, you put it on all the platforms. Um I do know you, you did some theatrical too. I, I wondered if you could bring us through how you accomplished that uh, independently. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I wanted the movie to be in theaters. And it also just helps with the release down the line, um, being a theatrical film. Um, it's just better when you're going to sell foreign and, and other windows like that. So there's that to calculate into it. Um, and... I had a uh, someone I knew who was a theatrical booker. He handled the theatrical campaign on my previous film, Tragedy Girls. And I reached out to him and said, hey, I got this new movie. And he loved it. And he's like, yeah, we can, we can do something with this. So we put it in theaters during COVID, which the theaters were dying for movies. You know, like they, unfortunately, so many of these theaters are, are in a really bad spot during COVID. You know, they, people, yeah. aren't, like, people aren't going. No, they're and, not even open here. Like, like yeah. they can't open here in, yeah. in Canada. A lot of places they can't open. When they can open, people aren't really going. A lot of people just aren't. And the studios aren't sending their movies. And a lot of the studios have held back a lot of their content or gone straight to streaming. Um, so the theaters have been in a bad spot. So they were – all the theaters were really receptive. I mean we could have gone – huge with our release if we wanted to. I mean, everyone was like, yeah, let's go. Um, it didn't make sense for us. And we, I don't think we had the wherewithal to do giant release, but we opened in 50 screens and we crushed in drive-in theaters. Oh, that's great. I I remember I drove out to the drive-in in in LA, just not knowing what to expect. I went with, you know, invited a few people, maybe like three cars, of, of my three or four cars total with my group on, on the opening night and the place was packed. I mean, just packed with cars came to watch the movie and I was blown away. Um, and this continued to happen night after night across the country. So we, we started expanding into more drive-ins. 
Um, and that was really cool. That's great, man. That, and I, I'm honestly like, I love to hear the drive-ins like a, a positive thing from this is that drive-ins have made a comeback in a way. And yeah. like, I can see like a whole other, you know, subset of indie film, you know, drive-ins, grindhousey horror stuff making, you know, a big comeback in that world. I think so too, man. I think drive-ins are like perfect for people. Dude, you get to be in your car. I mean, what a great date, you know, like it's like a perfect date. If you want to go out with somebody, you have some privacy, you do whatever you want in your car, you watch the movie, especially during COVID, no one's around you. Yeah. Drive-ins are cool. Yeah. I, I love the, the experience. I love any type of like older theater experience, just classic, just, I don't know, hundred year old building watching a movie in there. Um, so with a theatrical thing like that, like, and you approach this, you know, company that deals with that for you, um, is it similar to like a, um, aggregator where like, you know, quarterly or biannually you're getting like a check from them or is it just like they pay you a flat fee? Like we're taking it out to these cities. You're talking about for the theaters? Yeah. Um, it's, you do a split with the theaters. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, you do a split. So um, they, you know, they just pay you a percentage of whatever the ticket sales were. And I'll tell you, like, I mean, again, it's that we're not talking crazy, crazy business here. But of all the films that I've had open in theaters, this has been the most lucrative. Yeah, I am. and that's like a one. That's a success on its own, but it, it's a success all in a different category during a pandemic, right? For sure. Yeah, like oh, for sure. Like amazing. Um, so that's great, man. Like that's a huge success. I, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I do uh, a handful of questions I ask every guest. Um, so I'm going to bring you through a handful of those questions. So it's a, but I've been tweaking them here and there, but, uh, this, they're they're basically the same. So, uh, I'll run you through these questions now. Um, if you could give your former self any advice, what would that be? time machine you go back give yourself advice early when when you're starting out in the business yeah i I mean i two things come to mind one is have no fear Mm. just go for it um not that i've ever really lived in fear but i definitely was apprehensive to direct right away i wanted to sit back and produce and learn and and maybe that maybe that was the right move but like sometimes i'm like oh i should have just jumped in it sooner with just like directing my first film so i just make sure like not to ever act out of fear like just always go for it but then the other one that i'm thinking advice wise and i don't know exactly how to articulate it but it's really just all about story you know like just write good stories find your voice really be focused on put story first, put craft first before anything else. Mm. It can be hard when making films because there's so much business involved in it, you know, and you have to remember that at the end of the day, it is about telling stories for people. Um, uh, those are the two things that came to mind. No, that's great. Um, so often, you know, we like to talk about our successes and, you know, how great that is. And obviously you've had a lot on this film, 
But uh, I wonder if you could talk about uh, if you're willing to share a failure uh, throughout your career, something you failed on, but you learned from and what you maybe learned from that. I failed so many times. Um, I've produced a bunch of films before this and I look at every one as a failure because every single one of them, I thought I was making Citizen Kane. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, like. I mean, I didn't think I was making Citizen Kane every time, but I, I, you know, I, yeah, I always go into things just really, I'm charged. And so many times, you know, I've made a movie and just like watched it and then like, oh my God, the second act isn't working. Like what is wrong with the second act? Why is it not, what, what's going on here? And then I've had to like figure it out and learn like, oh wow, okay. Um, and then you're trying to fix things in the editing room and, and build stories there. Um, or, you know, licensing your movie to the wrong international sales company. Mm, I've got a few of those stories <laughs> and getting screwed on those deals. Yeah. You know? Um, there's just so many failures. I guess you just got to fail upwards. Mm. I mean, that's a lot of people in this business, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, I've gotten the email like, uh, congratulations, your film has got a distribution deal in Japan. You made X amount of money, but unfortunately all the fees are exactly that X amount of money. <laughs> it's a joke. Yeah. Um, magic wand, what would you want to change about the film industry? Oh man. Um, dude. What I would want to change, I don't want to say it because I'll get in trouble. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so what's next? Like, what do you have on, you know, what do you have planned next? Like, obviously, you're still dealing with press and everything for for, for Flinch, but, um, you know, what do you want to do next? Um, yeah, I've got, I got, I got one script I really want to do next. Uh, it's a bigger movie. We'll see if I can mount it. And then I got this other script that I love that I need to finish it. It's not totally done. There's a little bit more I want to do to it. I want to finish that and try to pursue it. And then there's another script that I have not cracked yet, but I feel like once I crack it, it's going to be great. So it's just like getting my scripts ready and 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 making what's next. You know, I don't have like the thing lined up this second, like, Oh, I'm going and shooting this movie to, you know, in a yeah. month. I mean, um, that would be really impressive, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great, man. And people can check out the film. It's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, uh, Google play, uh, was where I found it in Canada. Um, so yeah, encourage you to go check it out. It's a great film. It looks great. The soundtrack is great. The acting is great. It's worth checking out. Uh, Cameron, I've had a great time talking to you and I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us, you know, some insider knowledge of, of how you got your movie accomplished. Um, I think it's, uh, I think this, you know, independent, uh, way of distributing movies is the future as well. And, uh, I like hearing when people have success at those types of things. So yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Adam. It was great speaking with you. Game over, man. Game over. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Lost Commentary, on Instagram at Raiders of the Lost Commentary, 
and like us on Facebook. I'll be back.